For those of you who, are, uh, who haven't been here the last few days, um, my name is Dave Brown. We are missionaries with Biblical Ministries Worldwide, church planting mission, operating 37 different countries, 500 missionaries. Karen and I were in South Africa for about 12 years, and then we were serving the European team for about six years. Now we are missionaries without borders. We're so old, they've put us out to pasture and shipped us around the world, and so we are training all new missionaries that come inside the mission, and then also retro-training uh, some of those who are out there on the field and training nationals as well. So we spend about 60% of our year overseas traveling. Some people are like, yeah, when we retire, we want to travel. I'm like, when I retire, I want to stop traveling, you know, a little bit different. Before we were in missions, I was a lawyer. Okay, we all have dark pasts. Don't hold it against me. I was a Philadelphia lawyer, which is one of the worst kind. Unless you need somebody who's a real pit bull on your side, then you hire a Philadelphia lawyer. They haven't missed me. There were 30,000 of us in Philadelphia. <laughs> That's why the city's in such a mess. Um, but anyway, I had a family come into my office uh, one day, and they were having their will drawn up, and they shared with me a, an experience they had had the previous weekend, uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, okay, so they went down to the inner harbor in Baltimore. Baltimore has the legendary distinction of being a truly ugly city, but there was a point at which it was beautiful, it's situated on this waterway in the harbor, uh, Fort McHenry, where the national anthem was written, is right there, you know, oh say, can you see by the dawn's early light? So, but it became very industrial, but about 30 years ago, they started to clean up the Inner Harbor, and so they have really nice shops there, Cheesecake Factory, and they've got this old Ironside ship in the harbor, it's really cool. So this family was down there, dad, mom, son who's about 10, daughter who's about 8, and they're spending the day there, <laughs> and as they're walking along, this little furry, hairy thing comes skittering up to the girl, and she picks it up, and she's like, he's so cute. You know, he's wiggling around in her hands. And Can we keep daddy, you know? And, well, father says, being responsible, he says, well, somebody may have you know, lost this, this dog, and so we need to go to the authorities. And so they go to the authorities. Has anyone reported a missing dog? No, no, not at all. He says, well, tell you what, here's my business card. We live up in Pennsylvania. Um, if anybody calls for him, we'll be glad to bring him back, but we'll take him with us. So they did. They went home, and <laughs> the family had a cat. Uh, and it, it, this, uh, after about two days, the family cat could not even be found anywhere, you know. But this girl in particular loved this little guy because even like when she would take a bath, he would come skittering into the bathroom, and he'd look up in the tub, and then he'd jump into the tub and swim around in the tub with her. So this was a very deep, affectionate relationship she had with him. And, uh, well, two weeks went by, and the father, being responsible as he was, said, you know, nobody's claimed him, so we need to get shots and proper ID tag and so forth. So they went to the vet. The vet took him in the back. 20 minutes went by. 30 minutes went by. Just for a shot, 40 minutes went by. Finally, the, the vet came out, and he said, where did you get this animal? 
He was running around the docks in the inner harbor in Baltimore. I, I don't know how to tell you this, but this is not a dog. This is a very rare form of an Australian river rat. And the father's like, no wonder he liked being in the tub. And the vet, <laughs> the vet said, I, sir, I, I can't let you take this home, this long-haired, tailless rat. If you get out in the rodent population in Philadelphia, it'd be horrible. Um, I, I had to call the University of Pennsylvania to try to identify what this creature was. But we have to, they want him, uh, they, we have to put him down. We're going to have to, they want to dissect him and find out, because he's a very rare, rare animal. So the family was kind of heartbroken, but maybe not so heartbroken at their rat, non-rat thing that they had. Well, a couple of weeks went by, and, and the vet called back. He said, yeah, we took him to the University of Penn, and they did their studies and so forth, but I, uh, did you own a cat? They had found remnants of cat bone in his stomach. He had eaten the family cat. Now, why do I share this story with you other than to totally freaking gross you out on a Sunday morning? Aren't you glad you just didn't have breakfast a few minutes ago? Um, the point is this. This family saw this thing and they immediately made an assessment, a snap judgment as to what it was. They were not careful. And so, based upon that presupposition, they entered upon an entire course of conduct that was dangerous to the family. We can do that when we come to God's word as well. Yeah, well, that's, that's what it says. And sure, well, I, kind of, I kind of see it this way. And we make a snap judgment and we walk away from God's word. God holds us accountable for that. But we find ways of excusing ourselves and getting out of it. And we enter upon a course of dangerous conduct. And I promise you, virtually every single one of us, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, is going to be like, yeah, I, I, I did hear that. Yeah, I, I sat under that preaching for years. And yeah, no, I knew that was my job. But I, I, uh, if I could just do this thing over. So I want you to listen carefully today. Because I'm going to say some things that are going to make you uncomfortable, number one. Number two is going to make you accountable. You're going to walk out of here, like it or not, with a burden of truth on your back. And you got to do something about it. And you will answer for whatever you hear for here today. So let's start. We're talking about piercing the darkness this weekend. And the title of this morning's message is The Exponential Effect. The reason for the title will become apparent as we go on. A number of months ago is in Indonesia. Indonesia is very tough on crime. <laughs> We, uh, when I was on a flight there, we were, we were boarding, and they were going through their announcements, and they did it in Indonesian, and then they switched over to English, which is pretty cool. But she said at the end of her announcements, and remember that bringing illegal drugs on this flight is a serious crime and will be punished to the maximum penalty, including death. Thank you, and have a nice flight. And we all kind of looked at each other, and we're like, dude, did she just say death? Yeah, they're serious about drugs. On April 17, 2005, nine people were arrested for smuggling $4 million of heroin in Indonesia. 
Some of them, as you can tell from the picture, are just kids from Australia. These became known as the Bali Nine, and the ringleaders were Andrew Chan and Miran Sukumaran. Don't they look like ringleaders? <laughs> four years later, so that's 2005, they were arrested. Four years later in 2009, seven of them were given life sentences. But Chan and Sukumaran were given the death penalty. Shortly thereafter, Christians who had visited the prison to provide counseling and activities for the prisoners led Chan and Sukumaran to saving faith in Jesus Christ. As part of their repentance, they admitted their wrongdoing to authorities. Chan began studying the Bible voraciously and then started studying theology classes online. Within a few months, Chan had led numerous inmates and death row fellows to saving faith in Christ, had baptized them in the prison, and was leading Bible studies. After six long years of study inside Bali's Karabokan jail, the 31-year-old was ordained for ministry just over a year ago, February 5th, or February 2nd, 2015. But all pleas to reduce their sentence from death to life sentence were rejected in April of last year. And Chan and Sukumaran took their final journey by boat to Nusakambagan Island, known as Indonesia's Death Island, to face a firing squad. Two things happened the night before the executions. Andrew married his fiancée, Fabianti, who was a very strong believer. And global outcries to stop the executions failed. And so believers just wept and prayed for dying grace for them. On April 29, 2015, Chan, Sukumaran, and six other death row inmates walked through this tunnel to the execution field. According to David Sober, a prison observer with the Salvation Army, as they walked, Chan led the other prisoners in singing, Our God is Mighty to Save. It's written by Laura Story, by the way, and I sent this story to Laura. She's a, a musician in Atlanta. As they were tied to the poles, they refused to have the bags put over their heads. They wanted to die with joy and with power and with victory. As the shots rang out, they had been singing 10,000 reasons. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Two weeks later, funerals were held for the two, and Andrew had mailed a letter to be read at his own funeral. Typical of Andrew, knowing it would happen. A couple thousand people were in attendance. You can watch it all on YouTube if you want to. The service lasted a couple hours. The thing I want you to note is that as soon as Chan received the gospel of Jesus Christ, it changed his life. It birthed within him a hunger to know God's word and a drive to begin telling others about the saving truth of the gospel. The fact is, guys, ladies and gentlemen, we are saved to serve. What we have received is our responsibility to give. Our lives have a purpose, and it is not typically what we think life is about. It's not just getting through the next day. It's not our next hunting trip or that sale at the mall or my team winning the next football game or seeing the grandkids. It's not even about the big things like national elections or refugee crises in Europe or Iran's nukes or standoffs between China and Japan and the South China Sea. It is said that the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you realize why. Why 
are you? Why do you exist? This is not just something a frustrated teenage girl says to her boyfriend. Why do you exist? It's a legit question. If God is the blessed controller of all things, why did he put you here? This point in time, this place south of Seattle, why is your life? God is on a mission, and he sent his son on a mission. And then when he was finished, he said, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. Go and make disciples. You are part of this mission. And I think most Christians are totally oblivious to this. I'm a, I'm a contractor. I'm an engineer. I'm an accountant. And you have no idea of mission. We are to be living our lives on mission. And that brings us to our passage this morning, known as the Mission Psalm, Psalm 67. And I'm going to be focusing on verses 1 to 4. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. Selah in modern vernacular means, whoa. It's like saying something that's so amazing is like, dude, whoa. Let's just stop and think about that. That your way, so that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Selah. Let's pray. Father, we are broken, fallen, desperate people. Thank you that we are ransomed and redeemed. Thank you that you have set your love upon us. We are eternally indebted to you. But Father, you've promised to sanctify us. You've promised to make us more like your son. But Father, it just doesn't seem to be working as well. Would you kind of break through the crust of our hearts? Would you change us to make us more like your son? Would you radicalize our lives by your truth this morning? By your grace, would you please just not leave us alone? Seattle desperately needs to hear this truth. And we are the light bearers, so we need to have our torch stoked up. Would you do so this morning? By your grace, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so point one, only two big points. First is the incoming blessings. Verse one, may God be gracious to us, bless us, make his face to shine upon us. Selah. David is actually quoting Three phrases from Aaron's blessing. It's found in Numbers chapter 6. It's really cool. It's not something Aaron came up with at all. It's something that Jehovah came up and said, you will pray these phrases over the people of Israel. Now, if you go back to number 6 and take a look at it, this is what it looks like. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Just stop for a minute to say, if you are a leader, that is, if you're a parent or a teacher or anyone who's a leader at work, you need to give value to your people. You need to bless them. You need to equip them to make them what they should be, high-functioning in whatever their position is, but you need to bless them. Some of us are you know, on that perfectionist side, and we only see faults and flaws, and we're quick to point them out. But let's remember, God gave this to Aaron to bless the people of Israel. 
Have you blessed your kids today? Have you blessed your grandkids? Have you put your hand? And <clears throat> for some, my dad's idea of communicating love was to squeeze my shoulder. I knew what that meant. It was, son, I love you. You are important to me. And I just want you to know that I have the utmost hope for your success and God blessing your life in the future. But dad never said any of those words. He just kind of squeezed the shoulder. We need to be blessers. In giving love, you will gather love. All right, so enough said. Now, the cool thing is, all the Hebrew geeks come along and they're like, oh, you won't believe the way this looks in the Hebrew. All right, fine, tell me what it looks like in the Hebrew. Okay, in the first line, there are three words with 15 letters. In the second line, there are five words with 20 letters. And in the third line, there are seven words with 25 letters. It's a Christmas tree. It's got this structure to it. I wonder, and I can't go there and I haven't, studied it out, but I wonder if God had something in the structure, something in the symmetry. Why is it like this? Because God actually spoke it to Aaron to give, I don't know, it's part of the mystery of scripture, but it's cool. It's got this artistry. Let's take a look at it. The first blessing is the most general. The Lord bless you. To bless means to pour out his goodness and his benefits on you. The Lord keep you uh, in soccer. The guy who's the goalie, we call him the keeper. That means to guard, protect, to shield. May the Lord keep you. What a great phrase. Have you prayed that for your kids? Have you spoken that over your kids? The devil's eaten away at my kids. Well, maybe that's because you haven't prayed for God to be his keeper. Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, told the disciples, pray this, lead us not into the place of testing, but deliver us from the evil one, literally. Keep us, protect us. Do you pray for God to be a shield for you and the people you love? All right, second blessing, a little more specific. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. This is so cool. Yahweh, Jehovah, is spirit. But when he enters the human realm, he tends to glow. He tends to create a lot of light. And oftentimes, as we talked about a few nights ago, he shields himself in this thick darkness so the humans don't just get vaporized when he appears. But you remember Moses on Mount Sinai looking at God? Moses started to glow after a while. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Jesus, when he comes back, big time glowing thing going on, okay? So what he's saying is, may his face to shine upon you. May you sense God's presence so strongly in your life that it's almost like you feel that he is there. And maybe when other people see you after you've spent time with God, you'll kind of glow a little bit, you know? Remember in Acts, uh, they, they hauled in Peter and the other guys for preaching, and they, they, they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, but they, they knew that they had been with Jesus. That's the idea. May the Lord's face to shine upon you. May Yahweh be so present in your life that it's like he's almost physically there, and may others sense this transformation. And then, may he be gracious to you. I like to redact hard theological concepts to simple, simple ideas. And grace, I always say grace equals help. So sometimes we don't understand the Lord's grace. It's too complicated. It's the Lord's help. Saving grace is saving help. Sustaining grace, sustaining help. Okay, so may the Lord be gracious to you is may the Lord help you through the struggles of life. May he show great kindness to you. The third blessing is the most specific. And 
it's pretty cool as well. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. That sounds weird. We don't use that phrase. Hey, your countenance is pretty lifted up this morning. No, I mean, when's the last time you ever said that? Duh. No. A clue to help us out here is go to Genesis 4. Remember Cain and Abel offering sacrifices? And God did not regard Cain's sacrifice. And it says his countenance fell. That doesn't mean his face dropped off his head and fell on the ground. It has the idea that he became dark and sad and sullen. I bet you all have seen fallen countenances. Go to the mall. Go look at some teenagers in high school. It's actually cool to have a fallen countenance. You know, you can get a job modeling if you have a fallen countenance. We had a guy, a guy I taught last year, he's very stunningly gorgeous guy, you know? All the girls were like, oh, but anyway, I said, they were like, have you ever modeled? He said, yeah. Really? Yeah. It was for Abercrombie and Fitch or something like that. And he said, I just didn't like it. They told me, look, look kind of sad. He's like, now look kind of troubled. Now look kind of confused. He's like, <laughs> he's like, you know, I just couldn't. It was hard, you know, to, to be all the, but that's, that's hot, guys. Got, got this? I'm watch, watching you guys back there. If you're going to be hot, you need to be sad, confused, and troubled. That's a fallen countenance, okay? So if that's a fallen countenance, if the Lord lifts up his countenance upon you, it basically means may Yahweh smile with pleasure. Let me ask you this. If I were to be in God's presence right now in the next few minutes, that would be wonderful, and I were to bring up your name, what would God's expression be? You say, well, God doesn't care about me. God doesn't. Oh, oh, yeah, he does. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your every mood. He knows everything. He knows you better than you know yourself. But would your life, would your person, would your reputation now, as it is now, would it bring a smile to God's face? May God smile upon you. And then the last phrase, may he give you peace. This is a really cool, it's a word you're familiar with, shalom. But it's not just peace as in just give me peace, kids. Get out of the room. Peace has the idea of a holistic peace. May you have shalom in your health. May you have shalom in your finances. May you have shalom in your relationships. May you have shalom in, in your job. It has the idea of a, a wholeness and a wellness of being in all of its aspects. What a great word. We don't have its English equivalent, so we just say peace. But it's great. It's awesome. So back in Psalm 67, David's calling on three of these six phrases. May God help us, benefit us, and be among us so that we can almost see him, sense him. That's awesome. That's the incoming blessing. Second thing, not so fun, is the outgoing responsibility. Starting in verse 2, there's a connector. So that. Verse 1 is connected to verse 2. David doesn't get stuck in one. We'd love to stay in one. We love to just enjoy all of God's blessings. But let me remind you that there is a consequence to being blessed by the Lord, saved by the Lord. You have a responsibility to pay it forward. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, seeing the Lord high and lifted up, and it's like, wow, this is amazing. The train of his robe filled the temple, and there are angels with six wings. So cool. I mean, you know, he's seeing all this stuff, and 
You know, it's like Isaiah said, well, I'm a man of unclean lips, so the coal comes and cleans him and purifies him. And it's like, time for cuddles with the Lord, you know? But he looks up in Yahweh's face, and Yahweh isn't looking at him. The Lord is looking out. He says, whom shall we send, and who will go for us? It's not a matter of just receiving all of God's blessings and having cozy time with the Lord. That is to fuel us to go out on a mission because our God is looking for people to go for him. Peter, Mount of Transfiguration, really cool. Jesus is going there, you know, walking up, and all of a sudden, Jesus starts this, he's glowing, dude. Peter, James, and John are like, do you see this? Is, he glow- is this me? Uh, did I have too much coffee? Or is he glowing? He's glowing. Who are these other guys? Moses and Elijah. And Peter's like, let's just stay here. Let's just build booths. I'll stay in a shack. I'll be a squatter for the rest of my life. I just want to stay here amongst these three glowing beings. This is really cool. And God basically says, Peter, be quiet. Listen to my son. Because the fact is, you're not going to stay on the Mount of Transfiguration. What's the next story in the gospel account? They went down to the bottom of the mountain. There's a kid filled with a demon who keeps throwing the kid in the fire. Welcome back to reality. Yeah, you're not stuck on the mountain with God. May the Lord bless us. That's wonderful. Be blessed. But understand, you've got a mission going forward. Andrew Chan could have enjoyed his own Bible times and online courses worshiping in his cell. But as with Isaiah and Peter and Andrew Chan... God's blessing demands something of us. There are places to go, people to meet, conversations to have, work to do. This is not heaven. It is not time for rest. It is not time to chill out. This is the time to work until we wear out and slide into heaven fully used up. So many Christians want to have heaven here and then dying have heaven there. We are blessed to be a blessing. We receive to turn around and give because our God is on a mission. His church is always defined by forward movement. That is the danger of church buildings. That is the danger of organizational structure. They build stability and sameness and repetition. Now, I know that this church has been through a bit of a a wrangle over the last four years. And so... Take the time to heal up and strengthen. But don't ever get comfortable in just doing church. You are the church. And I've asked Jeff that if you get comfortable to invite me back. (laughs) I will be a burr in your saddle. If we're not careful, the sameness can stifle forward movement. I've heard Jeff pray, Lord, help people leave our church, but for the good reasons, not the bad reasons. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, one day we'd like to close this church. Everybody's out on mission, and Jeff will get the lights, turn it out, and we'll wrap it up. We should be so living on mission. The power of the church does not lie in its seating capacity. It lies in its sending capacity, not in the strength of verse 1, but in the strength of verse 2. Verse 2 surely follows verse 1. So that your way may be known on the earth. Engaging in worship 
engages us in evangelism. If you're like, oh man, I really like this church, you know, I really, I really get a lot out of the worship, which is really an interesting phrase, is it not? I get a lot out of the worship. Isn't worship like for God? Who gives a rip whether you get anything out of the worship? Has God said by 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, is that what they call it? Has God said, man, Edgewood has met again today. I have been exalted and lifted up. See, people come to church for a lot of interesting and strange reasons. Some people, it's like, I have absolutely no spiritual life with God all week long, never crack the Bible, never say a prayer, and I come, you know, crawling spiritually into church, hoping that Pastor Jeff is going to pump me up. And I'm going to get pumped up out of the worship. But if you leave out of here having a great worship experience, and never share your faith during the week, I'm telling you right now, your worship is a sham. If you spend time with the true God of heaven, you're gonna go out of here and your world's gonna be rocked and you're gonna be rocking a whole lot of other people's worlds. You cannot spend time with the true God of the universe and go out and lead a flat life. Engaging worship engages us in evangelism. Why do we do this? There's not enough worshipers of our God yet. The number of people that are going to go up out of the Pacific Northwest as worshipers to heaven are too few at this point, and we need to increase that number. Our main mission is the Great Commission. It was given to every disciple. Very simple, one command, two promises, three tasks. One command, make disciples in every ethnic group. Two promises, I have given you my authority, and I'm with you always. And the three tasks, as you're going, be baptizing and be teaching. So study the gospel, study your culture, study how to make connections with people in this area. This area is known for secularism. This is where all the 70s hippies, for some reason in the, in the East years ago, went this way. And they all came here. And they smoked entirely too much stuff. And now they believe entirely too little in any kind of God or any kind of metaphysical dualism, any kind of life after death. You guys need to be scholars of, skept of skepticism, scholars of atheism. You need to understand these guys backward and forward. You're like, oh, I don't like that stuff. I just need the holy huddle here. No, 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 no. Your job is to engage your culture. If you were in Africa, I would be training you very specifically to understand about the living dead among us, the ancestors, which every African... It defines everything they do in Africa. There's not a lot of that here in Seattle. So you don't need to study that. You need to understand how to engage and connect with your culture. So the knowing, knowing the gospel and apologetics as well. Well, let me give you an example of how this is working. There is a gospel wildfire in Indonesia, and it's having this exponential effect on the gospel spreading. Uh, when I was a kid, in my teenager in, my, in the 70s, there was a revival in Indonesia, and we heard about it, and it's happening again. This is so amazingly cool. The people that we met with several months ago could document 11 different church planting movements with between 15,000 and 40,000 new believers per movement in the last seven years. That means there are thousands coming to the Lord each week 
The Muslims are saying that in Indonesia, two million people are leaving Islam and coming to Christianity. And they're, they're ticked. They're nervous. Yeah, amen. Good things happening. Now, what's happening? How is this happening? Well, big evangelistic meetings? No. Franklin Graham? No. One-on-one. -on -one. One Muslim background believer talking to two or three other Muslims and sharing something. What are they sharing? It's weird. I would never do it this way, but this is what's happening, okay? They explain the six sacrifice stories to someone. So you get somebody who's not a close friend and not a relative, but you start sharing with them the six sacrifice stories. Adam offered up a sacrifice. Why? Abel did. Cain offered the wrong sacrifice. And you talk about Noah, Abraham, Moses, and then finally, Isa. Isa al-Masih, Jesus the Messiah. By the way, in Indonesia, you tell people that you're a follower of Isa, you don't tell them you're a Christian. I said, why not? Well, Christians believe in sex, drugs, and violence. I was like, what? Well, America is Christian. Oy, oy, oy. Okay, I'm a follower of Isa. <laughs> Isa al-Masih is how they know him. Let me state something to make it a little clearer than I did in the early service. The, the term, the Arabic, the Arabic word for God is Allah. So when you speak to someone, you can say Allah has a son. It's actually Allah in human form. His name is Isa. Some people, American Christians, get very nervous about this because they think Allah is the name of the Muslim God. It is the word for God. So you say Allah has a name, and his name is Yahweh. His name is Jehovah, because Allah is, is the term God. Uh, if you go back into ancient Hebrew, the word for a deity is El, and it simply means power. Like El Elyon means the most powerful, powerful one. If you go back in ancient Arabic, it's Al. El, Al, like the airline, El Al, Okay. So understand that the terms meet going way back to the time of Job 2200 BC. The languages were pretty much the same, but they have changed. Just like American English is different than British English, like you catch the trolley and you go down the road several blocks, right? Why are you saying blocks? It's blocks. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. So El and Al both mean the power, talking about deity. So Allah is the word as it's developed over time. If you want to really irritate a Muslim and get shot, uh, you just say, what is Allah's name? Allah's name is Allah. Now you say, well, that, that just means God. What is his name? Allah has a thousand names. He is love. He is mercy. He is love. Bah, 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 and all these descriptions. And you're like, yeah, all right. Those are good descriptions. But what is his name? Really freaks him out. It gets him angry. Our God has a name. He gave himself a name. Moses right? What shall I say is your name? I am that I am. Jehovah, that is my name. Amazing that God has a name. So <clears throat> back to the point here. They share the six sacrifice stories with this non-believer and they say, now don't invite, they don't invite him to come to Christ. They say, this week, I want you to share the six sacrifice stories with three other people. You actually ask them to repeat back to you these sacrifice stories and share it with three other people. We will meet here at this same time, the same place next week. So next week, the guy comes back. Normally, he's bringing several people with him. 
And you go over the sacrifice stories again, and you ask them, do you believe this? And if they believe, they pray to receive Christ as, as God and Lord and Savior. Big step. But if they do it, then you say, now you must be baptized. Right now. Right now. So women baptizing women. Men baptizing men. No church meetings. No waiting for a scheduled baptism. You baptize them. If you got to do it in a bathtub, you just baptize them in the bathtub. Out in the river, the lakes, whatever else. Baptize them straight away. Then they give them the great commission from Matthew 28. You're told to go and make more followers of Isa. And you must share these sacrifice stories with five people this week. And one-third of the church meetings they have in their house churches, one-third is sharing about the people that they have talked to that week. So there's very high accountability. In these house church meetings as well, they're not giving them any music. They say, go to the Psalms and write your own Indonesian music. So anybody who has a harmonica or a guitar or whatever they're writing their own hymns. They're writing Christian songs now by the thousands. I was in a church service in Lewick on the island of Sulawesi, and um, these teenagers got up, and they had this little piece of paper, and they sang this beautiful song with guitar accompaniment. And people, I looked around, people were crying. And I said to Steve, who's one of our missionaries there, I said, why are they crying? He said, we are translating the Bible into the Saluan language. You'll see a video on it tonight uh, talking about it. And uh, I said, okay. He says, this is the first worship song to God ever sung in Saluan language. Pretty cool. So they give him the Great Commission. They give him Colossians 3 to read about moral teachings of cleaning up their lives and obeying Jesus obeying Isa. And one of the methods that they do was very interesting. You don't share the gospel with family or friends because that's where you get the very strong opposition. So you share the gospel with people you don't know or people you only mildly know. Trust the Lord to get the gospel back around to your family members. The other thing is that they don't really share it with teenagers because teenagers get overwhelmed at the adult opposition and the threats they get from the imams. So they're witnessing to people like 40 and older, and that's how the gospel is spreading. And of course, immediately, soon you're gonna have uh, leaders for your church and so forth. So the problem, the, the difficulty for people like, missionaries like myself, is to know how we can help because American missionaries tend to slow things down. This church planting movement, all of these movements have no church buildings, no vocational pastors, and no money. They're just sharing, the, it's like living in the book of Acts. It's amazing. And so our job is to get with as many house church leaders as we can and train them in a basic theology. They have no church history. They have no theology. And we're trying to train them. Not easy to do. But anyway, the dynamics that they're, they challenge us. Every believer sees that they are meant to lead people to Christ, to baptize them, to teach them, and to plant churches. How many people have you ever baptized? Well, I don't do that. The reverend does. Where'd you learn that? See, that's some, some change that came along in church history that the priest has to do it. Every believer is called to make disciples, to baptize and teach. So everyone is sharing the faith. They're taught to obey the commands of Christ. The first one is the Great Commission. So every believer is doing it. The turnaround time of each spiritual generation is very short. 
In these church planting movements, there are like 20 to 25 generations. This guy leads this guy to Christ, and this guy leads this guy, and or these three, or these 300. And I mean, it's just amazing what's happening as the ripple effect spreads out. And we thought to ourselves, boy, what would it be like to bring these guys back to the U.S.? Huh? And visit you. I have been a follower of Isa for seven months. I have led 13 people to Jesus and have been involved in two church plants. How about you? Well, I've been a Christian for about 23 years. 23 years? How many thousands must you have led to Isa? Yeah. How many churches have you, have you planted? Uh, will I go to church? I mean, the conversation's not going to go well. Uh, some of the most scary things in the world to do is to expose a new believer to an older dysfunctional believer. Hey, I can come to church, I can get pumped up and do squat in my Christian life, and it's okay because everybody else is doing the same thing. They never let them sit still there. They keep them moving. Immediate of it, you are saved to serve. You're saved to share your faith. Do it now, now, now. You say, well, I don't understand a whole lot. They understand a whole lot less than you do. They're rifled by this work of the Spirit in their lives. Now, we asked them, guys, we had these short, short brown pastors and us white guys standing there feeling really badly about ourselves. And we said, how, how has this happened? Why is God doing this here? How has this come about? Can you explain what's behind all of this? And they cocked their heads to the side and they said, we have learned desperate prayer. And we all just kind of looked down and nodded our heads and we thought, we have not learned desperate prayer. What if desperate prayer is behind all of this? Sure enough, you can read books on revival and revivalism and you'll find out behind every revival is a deep commitment to desperate prayer. We went through four days of training. They would train us for 40 minutes and they'd say, let's break up for a time of prayer. And we were like, yeah, let's do that. And so we bowed our heads. These guys are like, Jehovah God, we cry out to you as desperate sinners. Please redeem our people in Indonesia and ended up weeping. (laughs) And I thought, when's the last time that I have ever wept? for a lost soul or wept for my country. Not that we'll win the election, but that God will save people by his grace through the gospel. Well, desperate prayer, certainly. The Muslim, war- the Muslim worldview also helps. They believe there is one God. He created everything. He created mankind in his image. Mankind sinned against his holy law. God is angry with them, and one day man will be judged. That's a pretty good starting point. You know, that's a whole lot more common ground than you find with other people. But they have no idea of a God who loves humanity. Allah has never, he is spoken of as being love, but doesn't say who he loves. And it's never spoken that he loves humans, let alone that he actually decided to serve human beings by becoming a human himself and dying for their sins. Unbelievable when they hear this. They weep when they hear this that God actually loves us. So the Muslim worldview is a help. Religious freedom helps. 
Indonesia has like five main religions. There's Islam. It's the largest Islamic nation in the world. I don't know that I forgot to tell you this. Uh, China is the largest nation in the world. India is number two. United States is number three. Indonesia is number four. Number four. It's a big, and it is the largest Muslim nation in the world. You tend to think Muslim equals Arab, but actually the greatest number of Muslims in the world are in Southeast Asia. And they are very proud of being the largest Muslim nation, and they're a little worried about what's happening with this Christianity stuff. They don't oppose Christianity. There are a lot of Christians in Indonesia. That is fine. A lot of Buddhists, a lot of Hindus, a lot of Confucianists from China. No problem. And so if I were to try to get a visa to translate the scripture for Christians, no problem. Train pastors, no problem. Evangelize Hindus, big problem. That's unlawful. You're not allowed to proselytize into another religion. Not allowed to evangelize. So we got to break that law. But we do it, try to do it creatively. You actually have an ID, like a driver's license, and it has your religion on the driver's license. By the way, it's illegal to be an atheist. <laughs> yeah. It's great. They say the atheists are the tourists who come and, you know. Anyway. And here's the last point, and I, there's no way we can really replicate this. According to those that are involved in these church planting movements, both in Southeast Asia and in the Middle East, and I don't know why, one in 10 Muslims are dreaming about Jesus. How inconvenient. God is cheating. Now, in these dreams, God, Jesus is not giving them the gospel. He's just appearing. And it's a Revelation 1 Jesus with the eyes of fire. And they wake up in a cold sweat, freaked out. But they know who it is, and they know that he exists and that they must go and find him. So if you ever have a Muslim come up to you and say, may I get a copy of your Bible? You'll understand maybe what's going on. A couple of weeks ago, um, a guy who was one of the high ups in ISIS um, spoke at a church uh, in Washington, D.C. He uh, was one of the leaders of ISIS. I mean, a leading terrorist. And uh, he had a horrific dream seeing Jesus. Then he flew to another country a few days later to organize some kind of terrorist hit in the country. And um, he was at this coffee bar, restaurant, or whatever, and there's a guy at the next table, and, and I don't know what struck up the conversation, but they begin talking and got in on some deeper, more meaningful things. And finally, he says to the guy, can I share with you something that has happened to me? I had a dream, and it was about... Jesus. And the businessman happened to be a Christian businessman. And so he shared with him the full gospel, led this guy to Christ. This guy is now back in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan, threats on his life. He is like on their most wanted list. But that's a classic example of someone who now is filling in the theology through the scripture, but was scared into starting to search for Jesus through a dream. So that's also happened. So what's happening over there is wonderful. It's what I call the exponential effect. Um, it is where there's actually this rapid growth. The way that I could describe it, here's a linear for those of you guys who like charts. You know, you're one of those engineering types. Uh, linear growth is slow growth. Exponential is like 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, and keep going up, all right? If I were to light a candle here and then say, 
would two of you come up, bring your candles, and I would light your two candles. Now the three of us will go light the candles of three others, and then the six of us, and then you could see that's called exponential. And in a very short period of time, this entire auditorium would be filled with candles. And as it continued to grow, I mean, if each one of you would win one person to Christ and disciple them and bring them into this church within a year, just a year, this church would be doubled. You'd be beside yourselves. You wouldn't know what to do. You'd have no room. Let me put it in another way. Let's go to Indonesia. There's the island of Sulawesi. That's where we are working. Translate the scriptures and doing other things, making videos for YouTube, teaching Muslims the gospel. Really cool. Um, But Sulawesi has 18 million people. 10 million, from what we can tell, have heard the gospel. They've had exposure to the gospel. 8 million are unreached people groups, have not heard the gospel. How will we reach them with the gospel? Send over an amazing missionary. That's what we ought to do. A missionary who leads 50 people to Christ, forms them into a church, keeps moving, and ends up leading 500 people to Christ and grouping them into 10 churches in one year. Is that a good missionary? Yeah, baby, it is. We bring that guy back to a ticker tape parade. He's a hero in one year, leading 500 people to Christ, planting 10 churches. Wow. It will take him 16,000 years if there's no population growth in order to reach the rest of the 8 million people on Sulawesi. You say, I know what we need. We need more missionaries. Okay, let's send 50 of them over. 25,000 people a year. You know, lots of churches. It's going to take you 320 years to reach the 8 million people. But let's say this. One missionary lead 10 people to Christ, who then each lead two people to Christ, and so on and so on per year. It'll take you 17 years to reach the 8 million people. You see, it's not about, it's not about the professionals. It's about everybody doing the job and pulling their weight. Let me make it one, use one more illustration to make it maybe a little clearer that will connect with some of you. The village is going to face starvation in three years. What should I do? Provide them with two elephants or two bunny rabbits? Aha, now you see. Yeah, 645-day gestation period. Ladies, aren't you glad you're not an elephant? Despite what your husband says. Okay. Um, Yeah, so in three years, you'd have three elephants, roughly yielding 24,000 pounds of meat. But there's a thing about bunnies. Their gestation period is 31 days. So in three years, you'd have 50,653 rabbits yielding 600,000 pounds of meat. So if I could sum up the entire message today with a little take-home phrase, it's this. Be a gospel bunny. (laughs) Reproduce early. Reproduce often. Get it? Got it. Good. Okay. So our God is on a mission. I am part of it. So what am I doing? Have I basked in God's saving grace for just myself? Have I become too stable, comfortable, and complacent? Do I quietly disobey Christ's command to make new disciples by leaving it up to ministry professionals? 
oh, I can't do that. I, I, I can't. I, I just, I'm an introvert, and I wouldn't know what to say, and I might invite them to some Easter thing or Christmas thing or whatever else. You do not have that luxury. You do not have permission to excuse yourself. These are not suggestions. They're commands. They are the whole reason you are left here. Because you could live a great and industrious and professional, wonderful life in heaven. You could worship in heaven. But evangelism you cannot do in heaven. Have I multiplied? Have I reproduced even one? What relationships with non-believers in my life now have a redemptive direction? Am I a student of the gospel and my culture? Do I have a passion for all ethnic groups of the earth to know my God? Am I fully surrendered to go whenever, wherever, doing whatever he wants me to do? You need to, every one of you need to do this. I don't care if you never leave your home, you never move to a distant place. You need to be fully yielded and fully dedicated to whatever God calls you to do, even if you stay right where you are. Now, I know preachers, in order to try to get people to share the gospel, sometimes we try to inspire by making you so in love with Christ that you want people to know this amazing person. Other times, we put you on a guilt trip. That's what I did this morning. Bam, you know, making you feel really badly, you know. I should be different. I should be changed. I should really do. But let's say, let's remember that in many cases, you don't have a good presentation of the gospel down in your mind. And a lot of you are worried about the kickback you get from people that you share Christ with. I understand that. So this church needs to equip you. So the last question is, how might your leaders equip you for ministry and help you to overcome your fears? Because this is a fearful thing. It's not easy. I... I've shared the gospel thousands of times, but it's still not always easy. But you need to go to your leaders and say, hey, can I have more stuff on apologetics? I need to know how to dialogue with atheists better and not get angry or upset and just tell them they're going to burn in hell. That's no good. I got to come up with a better approach. Can you help train me? And I'm sure your leaders will be glad to do so. Our God is on a mission, and he has called us to be part of it. What are we doing? Is this this slow growth line? Could we not, by God's grace, turn it around in this mission field of the Pacific Northwest and see some exponential growth? Let's pray. God, our Father, thank you for your grace and mercy upon us. Thank you for your patience. We don't understand why you chose to use fallen and frail human beings who are fearful creatures, but you've chosen to. And so, Father, would you give us grace for boldness. Give us grace for courage. Give us grace for dedication to learn the gospel, to get it down cold so that we're able to share with someone at a moment's notice. Help us to start to look at coworkers and people at the fair and people at the shops and, and see that they are lost and we are stewards of the light. Grant us courage and change us by your grace, we ask in Jesus' name.